And join me, if you would, in Acts chapter 17 for just a few minutes before we take the Lord's table together. This really is an extension of last Sunday's message. And um, sorry, we lost slides there for just a second. I was trying to find the right page number in the hymn book to announce it. And uh, there's two wonderful crosses in the hymn book, so I had to hurry and try to figure out which one it was. And as I was doing that, the slides came back on. So thank you, AV team. This is really an extension of last week's message. Last week we talked about Satan's playbook and and the tactics that he uses to disrupt or to attempt to disrupt the work of God on the earth by the spreading of the gospel. Now, um, since, since I'm kind of a student of the Bible and I've had the opportunity to study these things formally and also on a week to week basis, sometimes I forget Maybe you don't understand or maybe aren't following along geographically as to what's going on here. So I I just thought I'd throw up a couple of maps. This is a wide shot. You're not going to get much here except you're going to see probably Italy, the boot, right? This is all, these events that are happening are happening kind of around the rim of the Mediterranean Sea. And so um, the spot spot where we're going to focus is right here in the big red box. Um, And just to give you some context, um, that... They started, Paul and Silas started at the Red Circle in Antioch, and they've made their way uh, all the way over, and they're passing through this region. So let me zoom in on that region a little bit. Uh, They've been through Philippi, and now the text tells us that they passed through Amphipolis and also Apollonia, right? And they're on their way to Thessalonica. Who can blame them for wanting to put a little distance between them and Philippi, right? Uh, After all the things that happened there. So they're ending up, we're going to see them in Philippi, or in Thessalonica today, and in Berea today. So uh, again, I just, I, I put these maps up here to remind you of, of kind of where geographically these things are happening in the world. Last week we talked about Satan's playbook, his tactics, and this week we're going to see those tactics played out again and again in Thessalonica first and in Berea. There's nothing new under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us this, and uh, there's these tactics that are being employed to this very day that we live in today are being employed. They're chasing after Paul and Silas, and they're employing these tactics again and again. But there's something that kind of emerges out of the text that I want to share with you today, and that is, is that as these things are happening, as these tactics are being replayed again and again, we see Paul and Silas, we see Paul and Silas focusing, focusing. Now, I don't know if you've ever read a self-help book or if you've ever, you know, worked on, uh, you know, been a person that's trying to work on several projects all at the same time, but when it comes to leadership and, and running an organization, focus is a pretty important deal. In fact, Steve Jobs, the founder, one of the founders of Apple, uh, was often quoted about focus. Steve Jobs says, or said, focusing is about saying no. What he meant by that is he would, ma- he would rather Apple make a few high-quality products than to make many garbage products and make more money. Uh, I think that he showed that uh, a company can make few good products and still make quite a bit of money. I think Apple's doing okay, last I checked. Satan is consistently trying to derail the mission of spreading the gospel. 
There's growing hostility around Paul and Silas, and I would even argue today that we're living in a time where hostility, at least in the United States of America, towards Christianity is growing. But what do we see Paul and Silas doing? They are focused. We're going to talk about that today. So this is the big question we're going to wrestle with in the few minutes that we have. Given Satan's tactics, what is the Christian secret weapon? Given Satan's tactics, we'll review those twice because we're going to see them played out in Thessalonica and Berea. What are those tactics and what should the Christian do about it? Well, let's dive into the text here just for the time that we have and first discover that in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas made no changes to their system. They made no changes to their system. What do I mean by that? Well, we first see that they go to, they start in the synagogue, or as they did in Philippi when there was no synagogue, they find the God-fearing people that are there, like they did in Philippi. In Philippi, there was no synagogue, so they went out to the river on the Sabbath day where God-fearing people would normally gather to pray, and that's where they found God-fearing people, and that's where they began their ministry. Why? Why start, when you're, when you're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, why start with the God-fearing people, the Jews? Well, think about all the things they already had in common, right? They had in common uh, a belief in one true God, Yahweh. They, had that in, they held that in common. They had the Old Testament scriptures in common. In other words, Paul and Silas were total, totally in the camp that the Old Testament scriptures are the word of God, and they could be trusted, and so did the Jews. They had their Jewish heritage and tradition in common with these folks, and so they spoke a lot of the same language and believed a lot of the same things. The only thing that was missing from the Jews in Thessalonica was they had not yet reached an understanding that Jesus was the Christ. And so they moved on to their second thing, their second step in their system, which was to administer the good news. What does the text say? It says, Paul uh, went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Three Sabbath days, three weeks, a little less than a month, right? He's in the synagogues reasoning with the Jews, saying, explaining, and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead Okay, so if you go back into your Old Testament, uh, you will see example after example of scriptures that point to the fact that Messiah is coming, Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will have to suffer and be killed and then rise from the dead. And so he took them into the Old Testament, took them into the scriptures and showed them that was true, and then said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ is the Messiah. He has come. He has been crucified, and he is risen. So he explained that to them. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, remember, is, is kind of their mission. Jesus gave this to them before he ascended into heaven, saying, uh, you will be my witnesses, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's already happened. In Judea and Samaria, that's the regions around Jerusalem, that's already happened, and to the ends of the earth. And that last part, the ends of the earth, is, on the, ver- is the very mission that Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, probably Luke, are all, with, all together on at this time. 
So that's what they're doing. They are sticking to their system. They go to the God-fearing people. They give the good news, and then God brings the fruit. Some Jews and Gentiles are persuaded. Some Jews and Gentiles are persuaded. Once you get some of the God-fearing people in that town with the understanding that the Christ has come, they get energized about it. They start talking to their non-Jewish friends, their Gentile friends, and start explaining things as Paul and Silas has explained to them. They become energized. They get excited about the forgiveness of sin, not just for Jews, but also to Gentiles, non-Jews. And they begin to be persuaded and believe. Now, why is this? Why, why, well, these people that Paul and Silas are ministering to are people of peace. Remember Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives his uh, disciples instructions. You know, when you go into a city, you're, if you find a people of peace, my understanding of people of peace is that people that are reasonable, open-minded, willing to have a dialogue, willing to, to, to go back and forth and communicate and learn. And the people that Paul and Silas are, are going after first, the, the, the ones they're talking to first, seem to be people of peace. And they're just using, Paul and Silas are just using the tools that we all have at our disposal. Their personalities, their ability to articulate things with their words, the Bible, the, the common scriptures that everybody has together logic, reason, truth, all these things, they're bringing these things to bear on this topic. And God is, as, as they do their job, God is changing hearts. He's helping to expose their hearts and to bring them to a knowledge of the truth. And that's what we see. That's what we see here. And then another part of their system is well, let me read Second Corinthians first. Second Corinthians five eleven. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. That's one of our jobs as Christians, is to live and operate in such a way that, because we understand who God is, we understand the fear of the Lord, reverential awe of God, all that He's done for us. We persuade others. But the last part of their system is the t- is the tricky one. It's the one that we all like to avoid. And that is that they deal with the heat. I'm just using layman's terms, here, layman's terms here. They deal with the heat. The message of the gospel, whether it be the Roman Empire back then or United States culture today, the message of the gospel is a subversive message. It's a message we, we as human beings, we all want to believe that we're good people, that we're... That, we're basically good. The Bible says completely the opposite, that we are all depraved, that we're all, in our hearts, wicked before God. It's one of the reasons why it's, it, you know, we wonder why that human beings form governments, we form institutions, we form these large corporations, and, and we wonder why after a while those governments, those institutions, those large corporations become corrupt because the greed, the willingness to sacrifice the good of another human being for my personal gain is part of the nature of who we are as broken, sinful human beings. And saying that to people, 
saying that they are not the master of their destinies, but there is a God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and it is he that we have to measure ourselves against, not our fellow human being. It is he who we will stand before in judgment, not our fellow human being. And it is he who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross so that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins will be forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus Christ will be deposited into our account and we will be saved. That is a message that many do not want to hear. Especially when you're living in a Roman culture where there are many gods and even Caesar is deemed as a deity. This is a very subversive message to their ears and to their culture. And so with the message that they proclaim, they are bringing heat on themselves. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy when he wrote to younger Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not just Paul said this, but also Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know this, that it has hated me before it hated you. It's the most ironic. This shows the twisted nature of the evil one. Jesus comes with a message of, come one, come all. Come to the fountain of living water, and you will receive refreshment, the forgiveness of sin, new life in Jesus Christ, the ability to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit away from the corruption of the old way of life and towards Christ's likeness. And the world says, I don't want it. And in fact, I'm going to violently rebel against it. It's the madness of the evil one. Speaking of the evil one, the second point is in Thessalonica, Satan made no changes to his system either. He made no changes to his system either. This is found in verses 5 to 9. This is right out of the playbook that we studied last week. What do we see going on here? But the Jews were jealous, verse 5, and taking some wicked men of the rabble. These are not the high-quality men in the community. These are the liars, the cheaters. These are the, the, the ones that produce scandal, the ones that can't be trusted. The Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Do you see this playing out in our world today? You say the wrong thing on social media and you will get dragged by the Twitter mob. You will get dragged on Facebook. You will get dragged on social media for what it is that you say. This is not the way of Christ. Ephesians 4.31 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. These things, I've taught this before in the counseling room, and I, I hope that I've taught it here in the church, that these things in Ephesians 4.31 represent nothing but an emotional reaction to that which we don't like or understand. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Each one of those words is worthy of your time to study because they each mean something different. And so, for example, clamor means just raucous, loud speech, right? What do we see here in the text? Um, and when they could not, uh, sorry, they brought them before the authorities shouting, 
These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is clamor. This is an emotional response to messages that they don't want to hear, they don't understand, and they're not interested in inquiring about. So Satan forms, you know, the evil play, Satan's playbook is played out once again. They form a mob. Now, I've got news for you. This is, imp- this is an important facet to this. You might ask yourself, why are Paul and Silas, or their entourage, why, when the heat comes, why do they leave? They left Philippi. They're going to leave Thessalonica. And Paul, and then later the the rest are going to leave Berea. Why do they leave? Go back to Luke 10. Jesus instructed his his disciples, when you go into into a town, seek out a person of peace and, and minister to that person. But if you can't find a person of peace, shake the dust off your feet against that town, right? I'm paraphrasing heavily. Read Luke 10. Once the city becomes driven by the mob... There is no more opportunity for peaceful ministry of the gospel. And so what do they do? They leave town and they leave behind. We're going to see in the text, they leave behind brothers. They leave behind believers. Remember those Jews that came to Christ, those Gentiles that came to Christ. They leave them behind and they have the luxury of having already formed relationships in the community. They can wait for the heat to die down a little bit and then they can start ministering the gospel. The church, the small church that's formed in Thessalonica can start ministering the gospel to the city once again. It doesn't make any sense to minister the gospel to a mob. Sometimes I think that our temptation as Christians is when a mob forms and they're coming after us, that we just want to get out our louder bullhorn than they have and shout back at them. It's not fruitful. We see that in the text. It's not fruitful. They resort to violence. They resort to violence. They drag Jason, they go into Jason's home and they drag him. Uh, it says, the text says that they dragged him right before the city authorities. I don't know about you, but I don't want to, you know, a, a, an act of dragging someone before the city of authorities is, is, seems violent to me. This is, again, not the way of Jesus Christ. We don't resolve spiritual issues with violence. One of the qualifications for an elder which is in, of a church in 1 Timothy 3, is not violent. Not violent. Uh, some of us like the King James, not a striker. Oh, you're not going to believe in Jesus? Kapow! No, that's not the way we are to operate. That's the way, though, that we see the world operating. They're also operating in lies. They're stirring up, their, you know, you don't hire the wicked men of the city who are rabble to go out and proclaim the truth to the, you know, in my mind's eye, this is what I'm imagining. I'm imagining that the Pharisees are are rounding up these wicked men, these rabble, and they're saying, all right, I want you to go to the gates of the city. That's where a lot of news is disseminated. I want you to go to the coffee shops. I want you to go to to the areas where people congregate and talk about the marketplace, the square, whatever, and just tell them the truth. Just tell them that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. No. 
they're going out there and they're saying, we got this Paul and this Silas, these guys are turning our city upside down. We got to get them out of here. We got to do something. We're going to have to hold the city leaders accountable because they're not doing something about this issue. Does this sound familiar at all? I mean, this is like 2023 politics. So they're disseminating lies. Uh, this is, not, again, not the way of Christ. Uh, the way of Christ is that we are to operate in the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Brothers and sisters, I am so sick and tired of watching the news these days because I'm being lied to on every network. Every, every one of them is lying. They're putting their spin on it to give us their narrative of their version of reality, and I'm tired of it because it's lies. I don't care if it's Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, or EIEIO, which is my new farming network. Watch it. Watch it on some cable channel that nobody knows about. When a, in our day that we live in, when someone in leadership, whether that be governmental leadership, institutional, maybe even church leadership, is asked a pointed question, there are tactics that are used over and over again. Number one, don't admit that you're wrong. Number two, present a different narrative. Number three, answer a different question. I love that when people are sitting in front of Congress and the congressman or congress lady says to the person, you know, asks a question, and then they answer, they proceed to answer a completely different question that was never asked or shift the blame. Lies are consistently used in these tactics. In John 8, 44, I'm not going to get into Matthew 5, but in John 8, 44, we have to just remind ourselves, this is the way of the evil one. And when we see people operating in this way, can I just stop right now and say, whether they're in your political party or the other party, whether they're on your side or the other side, anyone who's operating in lies is operating of the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let's not put up with this nonsense. But this is the tactics. This is the playbook. We're seeing it play over and over again. And just to get to our third point, in Berea, repeat. In other words, Paul and Silas go in and they execute their system. And then here comes the evil one executing his system as well. Now, uh, just a few notes. You see it. Let me just read 10 through 15 again. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. We're executing our system here. Now, the Jews, these Jews were more noble than, the, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So again, the pattern is repeating. They go to the place where the God-fearing people are, i.e. the synagogue. They start administering the gospel. It just so happens that the folks in Berea are a little bit more open-minded than the folks in Thessalonica. So many come to believe, many Jews and many Gentiles. Some of them are of high standing, right? Uh, But what do we see? Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. I don't know if Paul was more of a lightning rod. He was the, he, maybe he was the primary speaker in Berea, and so that's where all of the vile, like vitriol was focused on Paul. So they figured they could calm things down in the city by getting rid of just him and leaving Silas and Timothy to help. Anyway, the brothers immediately sent Paul off by his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul as far as, brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The whole thing gets repeated again. Now, just a few words. This word, these words, more noble, um, in the semantic range of the Greek word that makes up noble, uh, is the word is the idea of being more open-minded, uh, more willing to receive something that they at first don't understand, but are willing to listen, to ask questions, to 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 hear a different perspective. And I just want to say to all of you, that needs to be us. We need to be people who are careful in how we handle our spiritual lives, being careful not to inadvertently mix together, right, our spirituality, our our faith in Christ with some worldly thing, right? Some, or, or some tradition within the church that you grew up with, but upon further examination of the scripture you find is not really biblical. It may be wise, but it's not something, it's a preference thing and not to be impressed upon others as a right-wrong issue when it's in reality a preference issue. We need to be uh, as open-minded as the scriptures would allow us. In other words, when God says yes and God says no, we need to say yes and no right along with him. But when God says this is an area of preference, we need to admit that that's true and allow for grace for other people within the church and outside the church to feel differently about it. And also, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It also says that the Bereans examine the scriptures daily. They examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. And that speaks to their diligence, right? To their diligence. Uh, I once had a professor tell me um, that sometimes on matters of where the Bible doesn't seem to be as clear as in other areas, that he finds himself falling for whatever the last article that he read's view was, whatever the last commentary that he read's view was. And um, we need to be humble 
but we also need to be diligent to search the scriptures and try to understand what God has said. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us how profitable scripture is in our lives, right? It's profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that we can be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, in Berea, again, Satan came along and he executed his satanic playbook, right? Of forming a mob, spreading lies, resorting to violence, all these things. And so what happened next was Paul goes to the next town, which I'm going to read about the next time we're in Acts, which at this point uh, will be next week, and then we'll have to skip for uh, missions conference and Easter. But when we come back, we'll, we'll see Paul in Athens. Why? Let me just reemphasize. Once the, once the city, once Berea reached mob fervor, it was no longer, there was no longer people of peace to have fruitful ministry with. And so I believe that Paul, is, it, Paul and his entourage are operating in this principle, right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. They weren't having the fruitful ministry phase of their ministry was, was over. They had left a cluster of believers, and now they're on to the next town as the city gets riled up about their presence there. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to, that's going to probably rile some of you up, and I don't mean to, but I just want us to appreciate for a moment the focus, the, the gospel focus of Paul, Silas, Timothy, his group. When they were in Philippi and they were, and Satan executed his playbook, and then later after they were found out to be beaten without due process, they could have probably stayed there because they were Roman citizens and executed a lawsuit and tried to get the leaders of that town thrown out of office for their, for their quick-triggered actions that were unlawful. They didn't. They went to Thessalonica. As they were operating in Thessalonica and people were stirring up lies and the mob about them, they could have stayed in Thessalonica and tried to fight against the culture and try to fix the city or whatever. They didn't. They went on to Berea. They were focused completely on the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. Listen, I've dipped my toe I've dipped my toe into the political world. I'm on the library board of trustees, right? And here's the reality, the grim reality that I've reached. I'm trying to do good for the city, right? I'm trying to do well, uh, make good policies and make intelligent choices and all these kinds of things. But if I do that, and then when my term comes to an end and I'm not renewed, and the person that comes behind me has never heard the gospel. The person that comes behind me is not, uh, is not sensitive to both the needs of the unbelievers and the believers in this town. They're just going to quickly undo everything that I've done. They're just going to unravel it. And that would, be that would be within their purview to do, within their right as a trustee. Well, within their power 
But I want you to imagine this. Imagine that revival came to Delaware. And, and imagine that a, a good percentage of the city came to an understanding of the love of Christ that has been, or the love of God that's been shown to us in Jesus Christ, and a good percentage of this city gives their life to Jesus Christ, puts their faith in Him as their Lord and their Savior. That would be transformation, amen? And it would be transformation that would last. And so, I think the answer to our question this morning is simply this. In the face of Satan's tactics, the Christian secret rep weapon is this. It's gospel focus. Yes, you have a job, but are you spreading the gospel at that job? Yes, you have a place in leadership in the community. Are you spreading the gospel? Are you making disciples of Jesus Christ? You have families that you're raising. Are you making disciples of Jesus Christ to the best of your ability? Now, some things to think about by way of possible application are just a few questions to think about, and here they are. What happens when we lose focus on the gospel? What happens? What happens when we lose focus in our ministry? Right? Your personal ministry to others. What happens when we lose focus on that? What happens when we lose focus on it as our church? What if we were to devote, to devote all of our efforts into the school, into making the school as high uh, uh, an academic achievement as we possibly could, to devote all of our time at DCS to sports and academics and the arts and lose focus on the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I think that that would be a huge loss. A huge loss. And a, a misappropriation, a, mis a misuse of our ministry. What about our personal lives? What if we lose gospel, gospel focus in our personal lives? What does that mean? What happens when we stop getting up every day and reminding ourselves, I am saved, I am a saved person by the blood of Jesus Christ. All my needs have been taken care of, and now I am free to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand that I might walk in them, that I might live in them. What happens when we lose that focus? We try to start doing things for ourselves. We try to start doing it on our own might. We, we try st start trying to do it using the world's tactics. Things get ugly pretty quickly. Next, just how would you assess your open-mindedness? Are you like the Bereans? Are you like the Bereans? Are you diligent and open-minded? And then finally, what is your system of evangelism? When a new coworker shows up at work, what's your plan? When a new uh, friend enters into your orbit, what's the plan? These are good things to think about. 